Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Klai Yisrael what it's going to be like when you get into Eretz Yisrael. You're entering a very unique land, a land that's plentiful, that's bountiful. Eretz Chitus Ora Gefenetena. It will be a land which will bring forth bounty. It'll be a land in which it's not difficult to earn your living. And as a matter of fact, Moshe Rabbeinu begins warning about what's going to happen. You're going to eat, you're going to build beautiful houses. Your cattle, your sheep will increase. And you'll increase money. You'll become very wealthy. Everything that you possess will increase. And you'll become exceedingly, exceedingly rich. And then Moshe Rabbeinu warns, the Ram your heart will become arrogant, and you'll forget Hashem. And you'll say the words, You'll say the words, it was my strength, the strength of my arm that amassed this wealth. And Moshe Bena warns us, don't say that. Don't say that, remember that it's Hashem, God is the one who gave you the strength, God is the one who gave you this Remember that. And those are Moshe Rabbeinu's warnings, Moshe Rabbeinu's words, his prophecy about what's going to happen, and his warning about what might occur. And the only problem with these psukim is the Unkelis's definition. You see, on the words, that Hashem gives you the strength to amass all this, Unkelis says the words, Hashem gave you the advice to purchase those types of merchandise. What Unkelis is doing is seemingly changing the pshat. Moshe Rabbeinu says, remember that it's Hashem who gave you everything. And Unkelis says, what does that mean? It means that Hashem is the one who gave you the advice to purchase that particular type of merchandise that you bought. And this Unkelis is very difficult to understand because Moshe Rabbeinu is saying that you'll increase wealth in so many areas. Kesev is gold, silver, you'll have cattle, you'll have sheep, everything will increase, you'll build beautiful homes. Remember, says Unkelis, that Hashem gave you the wisdom to purchase that merchandise. It sounds like Unkelis is changing the pshat, limiting it so extensively that it's difficult to understand. And just to put this into focus, let's really focus on one simple point. If you would like to know what Hashem actually does, let's understand a little bit what happens on Rosh Hashanah. The Mishnah tells us, Kol Ba'i Olam, every occupant of the planet, every man, woman, and child, old, young, and in between, every individual is judged. And every individual stands in front of Hashem as one person, and that person's fate is meted out. And it's not just individuals, it's globally, which nation will go to war, which nation will suffer famine, which nation will enjoy tremendous prosperity? Which nation will have tremendous advances? Which new technologies will come to the marketplace? Which new diseases will suddenly appear on the scene? If you'd like to understand the extent of the judgment on Rosh Hashanah and signed on Yom Kippur, all you have to know is that the headlines of the New York Times are written on Rosh Hashanah. But it's not merely the headlines of that day. It's the headline of the entire week, the entire month, the entire year to come. But it's not just the headlines. 
It's the op-ed page. It's the international section, the national section, every detail in the newspaper. A number of years ago, the New York Times bragged about having 265 full-time reporters, 40 full-time photographers, because on this globe occupied by some 7 billion people, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of issues, a lot of intertwined issues, a lot of things. Now, when you realize that Hashem sits there as the grand master, looking at this multi-tiered chessboard, putting this pawn into position, moving this castle to where it should be, arranging humankind's fate, you begin to understand the extent of what's judged on Rosh Hashanah and signed on Yom Kippur. Every activity under the sun for the coming year. So here's the question on this Unculus. Yes, it's true that Hashem gave you the wisdom to purchase that particular merchandise, but it's so much more than that. Hashem also created the earth. Hashem maintains physicality. Hashem allowed it to be that crops should grow, there shouldn't be blight, that your cattle should increase, that your sheep should increase. Everything that occurred, everything that happened is Hashem. Very nice. Hashem also may have given you a particular piece of advice, put a thought into your mind. But why is Uncle is so limiting, so limiting the Pasuk to be this one small thing? And I believe this Unculus requires understanding because it's Targum, which was written on a very, very high level. And to understand this, I think we have to understand a little bit better some of the basics of what goes on in the world that we know. The physical world we live in is an extremely complex, intricate world. And when you begin studying the vast amounts of intertwined and interwoven parts, You're aghast by the complexity. A very, very sophisticated food chain. And at the base of the food chain is an insect world that's hard to imagine in its complexity. We think of bugs and insects and spiders as annoyances and maybe disgusting things, but nothing on the planet would continue living if it weren't for the insect world. Number one, when rain pours down on the earth, it penetrates beautifully. It penetrates all the way deep down to the roots of the trees and the crops, even though those roots might be 30, 50 feet down. Why is it that the rain doesn't just puddle on the surface? The answer really was given to us a little bit by uh, Charles Darwin. He didn't actually discover the economy of it, but I'll share with you in a moment a point that he made. In any case, the ground that you walk on, and certainly any ground that sustains crops, is filled with aphids and earthworms tunneling all day long. All day long, these earthworms tunnel, these aphids dig, and all day long, they create this tremendous micro-tunnel system. Much like a sponge that you'll hold under the kitchen sink, it's very light when it's empty, but as soon as it goes under the water, the tunnels in that sponge fill up with water, and it contains now holding a tremendous amount of water, the earth that you'll walk on contains these tremendous networks of microtunnels because all day long the earthworms and the aphids are digging, tunneling in the ground. Charles Darwin did the math. If you take the amount of sheep that can graze on an acre, that's approximately the weight of the underground world that are creating those tunnels. But it's not just that insects provide the ability for rain to penetrate. They're the base of the food chain. 
birds would cease to exist, small animals would cease to exist, everything in existence would stop, pollination, most crops wouldn't be able to produce because they're pollinated by either bees or insects, and life on a planet would cease to exist. Because insects are so important, and because they're so necessary for our existence, Hashem made them very, very robust. And as a matter of fact, there are two million different species of insects. That's what mankind has counted now. But they're so robust and so full of life that within a very short amount of time, they should overrun the earth. They begin multiplying swarms and swarms and swarms of them. And within no time at all, insects should overrun the planet. However, they're kept in check by primarily bats, birds, and one other type of creature that does a tremendous amount of eating of insects, and that's called the spider. Now, the typical spider web is a very ingenious and amazing thing. If you imagine the typical orb weaver, which is one of the more typical spiders, it builds a circular sort of web. And if you study that web, you'll find something fascinating. The spokes, kind of like the spokes on a bicycle, come this way. And then the spider weaves circles, 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 until he fills a very large area, and it is one of the most effective insect traps imaginable. The spider sits in the center of the orb. The spider is largely blind, certainly at night when there is no light. The minute an insect lands, the spider instantly knows where that insect is, what type of insect it is, and immediately knows how to approach it. A hornet that's caught is a very dangerous insect. The spider only approaches it from behind very cautiously. A fly, that's toast. No defense system. A moth also. Instantly, not only does the spider feel the vibration and know where the insect is, it knows which type of insect it is, knows how to approach, it approaches it, injects its venom, kills that insect, and consumes it. That's how it eats its dinner. But if you study a few of the features of the spider web, your jaw might just drop. You see, it has to be the perfect geometric shape that doesn't cause too much wind resistance or it'll be blown away. And yet it contains enough webbing so that it catches every insect that will pass. It has to be exactly anchored properly. It has to be exact shape and size so that it can do its job. Now, here's the interesting part. No mother spider taught the baby spider how to weave a web. Scientists take the eggs when they're first beginning to hatch, separate them, and allow them to begin growing as a spider, feed them by hand, and then release them into the wild. And in no time, the spider spins the web, knows how to create the silk, knows how to throw out the trail so it forms an anchor, form another anchor, begins creating the spikes, then the circle part. It knows intuitively and instinctively how to create this web. But that's not the truly amazing part of it. The question you have to ask yourself is, how does it work? Meaning, how does it catch the insects? You see, I don't care how sticky it is, the insects are just escape. Why doesn't the insect that lands, whether the fly or the moth, just fly away? So if you study the spider web, you'll see something amazing. The spokes that come down have no glue on them because that's where the spider himself walks. The 
circular parts over here, the spider lays beads of glue, kind of like beads on a necklace, bead, 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 around all the circular parts. So that way, when the moth lands, it hits the sticky spot, the spider walks down the spoke, which has no glue, and is able to consume the moth. But again, here's the question. How sticky could it be? Why doesn't the moth, when its legs land, just break away? If your leg landed in a pot of glue, you'd pick your leg up and walk away. Why doesn't the fly just walk away, and why doesn't the moth just escape? And the answer is because the spider web itself is highly flexible. You see, the fly's leg will land in the glue, and the web itself, the strand itself, is so flexible that when the fly tries to escape, it can't create any tension because the strand itself of the spider web is so flexible that it moves with it. And all the fly managed to do is pull it out in its flexible state, and then it gets another leg caught, another leg caught, and before you know it, it's enmeshed. Do you understand that spider webs are the strongest substance known to man? They say that if you take an inch solid spider web, it could stop a 747 in midair. No human being could possibly create such a powerful substance. Yet so flexible that astonishingly it moves back and forth freely. However, not every insect that gets caught in the spider web ends up dying there. The squash bug, for instance, often will escape. Now, how does the squash bug manage to do that? The spider is much larger. It's really quite simple. The squash bug will land in the spider web, and it doesn't panic. It waits for the spider to come close. As soon as the spider comes close, the squash bug emits this noxious, toxic spray, and the spider web, the spider himself, ugh, he gasps back. He begins re- regurgitating, spitting up. He has to clean his legs and his mouth, and he literally recoils back. And it takes him a few minutes to get rid of this caustic, toxic spray that's on him. And then the squash bug gets to work. He begins salivating freely. He takes his legs, and each time he coats it in the saliva, and then he applies that saliva to the glue of his other legs. But the saliva doesn't just break up the glue. It does something even more important. It makes the spider web brittle. It chemically causes a reaction in the spider web to take away. It's no longer flexible. It's now brittle. As soon as it applies it, it mixes the glue. The strand becomes brittle. The squash bug moves its legs away, flies away free as a bug. Do you know the chemical properties of spider webs to make it flexible? Do you know how to create the toxic spray to spray a spider so that it recoils back? Do you know the chemical substance to change the spider web from flexible to brittle? So here's the question. What is the IQ of a squash bug? What is the intelligent quotient of a spider? You can't test them because a pinhead is huge compared to the size of the brain. Encoded into it is all of the wisdom to keep it in existence. And when you study 2 million species of insects, each with all of the necessary things to keep it in existence, some with camouflage, some with great speed, some each one with a different method of finding its food substance, a different method of protecting himself, and then you see an entire ecosystem, layer after layer built on it, you should step back and say this is astonishing beyond belief. And you should see your creator right there. So here's the question. 
Why is it that we could study this and not be moved? As a matter of fact, how do I know some of this information? Because I picked up a book called For the Love of Insects by a scientist, a Jewish scientist, who spent his lifetime studying insects. 50 years. And the man is brilliant. And the man knows so many details. Every page that I turn in that book, my mouth falls open. I'm astonished by the wisdom. Is this man a great mamin? Did he fall on his face and say, Hashem Malukim, God, what a great creator you are? No, not at all. So here's the question. How is it possible that we human beings can stare at such sophistication, such systems of wisdom, and not be awed and not instantly see our Creator? And the answer is that that's one of the great things that Hashem did to allow for free will. You see, Hashem created the world in a manner that's constant and consistent. And because it's constantly that way, day after day after day, consistently in every situation, gases always tend to expand. Heat always tends to rise. Heavy objects always tend to fall, no matter where you are, no matter what environment. And because there's a constancy, and because there's a consistency, we accept it as it's nature. It's regular. But that's a Shem hiding behind nature. But of course, if Hashem would ever come out from behind the scene, the gig would be up and it would be clear to everyone that this is a wondrous and majestic creation. But Hashem hides behind what's called Teva, as the Ramban explains, the constancy, the consistency, and Hashem hides behind it so that if you wish not to see Hashem, you could blunder in the dark. If you wish to see Hashem, you have to actually open your eyes. But here's the point. It must always be that way. Because the minute Hashem will change it, poof, the gig's up, everyone gets the game. And for that reason, Hashem will very, very rarely, with great reluctance, bring miracles. Almost everything that Hashem does is in the way of nature. The way of nature means there's a particular manner. There's a derech of the olam. There's a way that things happen and almost invariably, that's the way Hashem is knowing, that's the way Hashem acts in the world. So here's the question. How could I daven? Let's assume I'm sick. This is a derech ateva. If my illness is a type of illness from which people die, I'm going to die. Let's assume I don't have a job. I don't have the skill set. I don't have whatever, the background. Well, there's a derech ateva. People who have skills do well. People who don't, don't do well. How could I pray? I'm asking Hashem to change nature. I'm asking Hashem to change the world. Hashem won't do that because it reveals Hashem, takes away free will. How could I daven? And the answer to this question is that almost every time that we ask Hashem to be involved in the world, we're asking Hashem to intercede into people's thoughts, into people's thinking, into making decisions differently. So that if I'm ill, I daven to Hashem, and I rely on the fact that Hashem will influence the doctor to make the right decision. Or maybe that the doctor's wife should suddenly say, we never go away, and demands that her husband takes her to Hawaii, and so that a different doctor is the one who actually operates, and this other doctor has a different perception, a different understanding. If I can't earn a living, 
Hashem influences certain people to, whatever the reason, to decide to give me a break, to hire me, or to become a client, or whatever the situation is. But almost all of the things that we ask Hashem for, we're asking Hashem to influence people's thinking, to influence the world behind the scenes, without ever changing nature, but always interjecting thoughts into people's minds, allowing them to view things differently. And if you study that which we call Hashkacha, Hashem's intervention, almost always you'll see someone had a thought, someone had an idea, and somehow that idea succeeded. Let me give you a good for instance. There was once a fellow who was uh, a nursing home administrator. A young fellow married and uh, he was doing well. His father gets a call that there's another group of people who want to purchase a home and they invited this young fellow and his father to join them as a team of four. So all four of them go down to the uh, owner of the nursing home. They have a long meeting discussing the details of the purchase, discussing the transfer, etc. And at a certain point, the owner of the nursing home says to the other two people, gentlemen, would you please step outside? And he leaves in the room just the son and the father. And the owner of the nursing home says to the father and son, I want to be candid with you. I don't like those guys. I don't want to do business with them. You guys I like. You guys I trust. This is my proposal. I'm going to sell the home to you guys alone. This young man almost instinctively says, well, but it wouldn't be right because they brought us into the deal. The nursing home owner looks at him and says, what did you say? I said, it wouldn't be right. I mean, they brought us into the deal. We didn't even know about it. For us to cut them out of it just wouldn't be right. The nursing home owner turns to this fellow's father and says, take your son outside, talk some sense into him. You have 15 minutes to come back. You either accept my deal or I'm not dealing with any of you. The two of them walk out. And the father says to his son, what do you want to do? son says, come on, it's it's not right. They brought us to the deal. We didn't know about it without them. For us to cut them out just doesn't sound like the right thing to do. He wouldn't budge. Father and son walk back into the room and they say, I'm sorry, we're not going to do it. And the nursing home owner turns red in the face, points to the father and says, teach your son some lesson. Get out of here, both of you. And that was it. Deal's done. Now, this young man was in big trouble. Because of the protracted negotiations and et cetera, he lost his original job in a nursing home. And it got to the point that he actually had to leave that city where he was, had to move to another city. Strangely enough, when he got to that other city, someone offers him a nursing home. Wants to buy it? Do you want to come in? Happens to be there's another fellow, very sharp numbers guy, who they create a partnership. And he buys another nursing home. The two of them buy another and another and another. Well, let me tell you a little bit of the sequel. I know this fellow quite well. He was in my high school shear a while back, and we would learn regularly Friday mornings on the phone. One Friday morning, he says to me, Rebbe, next week, I, I apologize, but I cannot, I can't learn. I try never to miss, but I, I can't learn. He said, you see, the governor asked to have breakfast with me, and it's the only time that, that he could do it, and I, I couldn't say no, so I apologize. Next week, I have to miss. Okay, why did the governor want to have breakfast with this fellow? Because the state owed them $62 million, and the governor was trying to beg some clemency, a little bit of breathing room. But here's the point. Who gave 
the second set of people the idea to go into a partnership with him. Another man should say, yeah, I think it's a great idea. We'll sell another home. And each move is perfectly arranged, perfectly set up. You could look at it and say, lucky roll of the dice. And if you don't study it, you won't see Hashem. But if you begin to study the strange coincidences that a fellow acts with integrity and honesty and then at least seemingly is rewarded with tremendous ashiras, you begin to see the hand of Hashem behind the scenes, speaking in people's minds, putting ideas into people's heads, and almost invariably that's the way Hashem runs the world that we live in. And I believe that's exactly the answer to why Uncle has changed pshat. Do you see... These people that Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking to were born in the Midbar. Remember, anybody who was 20 years or older who entered the desert died in the desert. The generation that was now going into Eretz Yisrael some 40 years later were effectively born and bred in the Midbar. In the desert, what did you live on? Mon that fell daily at your doorstep. Be'er, this huge rock that followed the Jewish nation wherever they went. This huge rock spewed forth millions and millions of gallons of water a day. They uncovered to protect them powerful pillars of clouds that guided them, smoothed the surface, kept the air-conditioned, comfortable place. They live with miracles. And the Chassam Sofer explains something astonishing. That when Yeshua took this generation into Eretz Yisrael, he said to them, You think you saw miracles? You haven't seen anything yet. Let me show you. Yeshua took a seed, he planted it in the ground, he watered it, and said, come back tomorrow. And they came back day after day after day, and slowly from that seed began sprouting forth a plant. And that plant began growing and growing taller and taller, and in front of their eyes they saw miracles of unimaginable proportions. The very food that they were to eat was growing from the ground, without elves, without somebody and somehow telling it what to do whether wheat or barley or corn, growing from the very ground, being created. They had never seen something like that, and they were so astonished by the miraculous nature of it that there was no way that this generation could take credit for it. Moshe Beno understood they'll become wealthy. They'll increase their bucker and so on, tremendous herds of sheep. But there's no way in the world that they could take credit for it. Because if you can imagine within a large cow, a small cow forming, and out of the large cow comes a small cow, but a fully formed small cow, with hooves, with fur, with everything neat, with eyes, everything formed. And you know that no one was inside the cow constructing it. And you say to yourself, how did it happen? Well, don't worry about it. The cow ate grass, and the grass became the hooves and the fur. And What, are you kidding me? No, no, really, that's how it happened. And what, what is this baby calf eat now? Well, it drinks the mother's milk. And where does the mother get milk? Well, it chews the grass and makes the milk. Well, sir, with all due respect, grass is green, the milk is white. What are you saying? You see, they came to this world without any prior exposure as mature adults. And they saw miracles of unparalleled proportions. And they were so moved by it that Moshe Rabbeinu knew there'd be no way in the world that they could take credit for their sheep, for their cows, for their goats, for anything. However, there is one thing that they could take credit for. Listen, I was bright enough to plant corn this season. I was bright enough to sell my corn and purchase wheat. 
I was smart enough to come up with the idea of investing in this commodity and that commodity. Hashem runs the world out there, but my decisions, my business acumen, thank God, that's me. And Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, uh-uh. Know and understand as much as you have to give God credit for creating and maintaining the world, you have to give Him credit for allowing you to think certain thoughts. If you succeeded in business, who put that thought into your mind? Who gave you that wisdom? Who gave you that thought? Know and understand that your failure or success is in the hand of Hashem, provided you've done your part. Know and understand that Hashem put that wisdom into your mind, put that advice, put that thought into your brain. And the reason why the Targum changes it is because for this generation it was the only thing that they possibly could have made a mistake on, and therefore Moshe Rabbeinu was telling them exactly this point. And I believe that there's a tremendous lesson for us to learn from it. And that is, while it's very important to study the world at large and be wowed by it, we have to study our world, and we have to study other people's approaches to us, and we have to study our own failures and our own successes. And provided that I've been wise, provided that I've been prudent, if I made a wise decision and invested in something and succeeded, I have to acknowledge who put that thought into my head. And the opposite, I decided to sell my real estate. Drat! What a dumb mistake. If it was wise and prudent, if I assessed properly, then I have to accept the fact that Hashem put that advice into my mind, and that was supposed to be. On Rosh Hashanah, it's decreed how much money I'll make. It's also decreed how much money I'm going to lose. And what that means is, as long as I'm acting as a wise individual, as long as I'm responsible, as long as I study this world and say, what is the appropriate, proper hishtadlis, what is my effort, after that point, I know that exactly that which Hashem wills to be will be. And Hashem puts thoughts into other people's minds, into my mind. That client that I got to, I somehow wowed and really came on. Bingo. That's because Hashem wanted that to succeed. And that other situation that blew up in my face, I prepared for months. And the presentation was perfect. But somehow, that's also Hashem. And knowing this, I believe, is a very big part of being an Ever Hashem. And certainly a big part of understanding what's judged on Rosh Hashanah and what happens on Yom Kippur. But I believe that there's a lot more for us to take from this than that simple lesson alone. And let me explain to you what I believe that is. A little while ago, I was driving my daughter to the train. And at a certain point she said, Ah, but you're speeding. And it was true, I was a little over the speed limit. But what was especially interesting is her shock. As in, Abba, you're speeding, because I never speed. And she was like, why, why, why are you so? I slowed down. And at that moment, because she was so like, you know, shocked by this strange behavior, I somehow began reminiscing. And I thought back to a time when I was about her age, about 19. And I shared with her, and I remember driving back to Yeshiva. And because on the highway, there were some highway cones. At a certain point, I thought there might be police there. So I slowed down. And I told her the number that I slowed down to. And her jaw dropped. She said, what? Now, because she was a girl, not a boy, I told her the actual number. A boy, I would never mention the number to, and I'm not going to mention it publicly. But when I told her the number that I slowed down to, she was a bit shocked. And she said to me, I don't understand. You were driving that fast? I mean, did you, did you really feel that you had control at that speed? And I said to her very honestly, no, I didn't think I had control. You see, control is something that never crossed my mind. 
Remember, control. Control means you could crash. I was a teenager. It could never possibly happen. It can't be. I didn't think I had control. It didn't have control. It wasn't relevant. I just put the car in drive, pushed the metal pedal down to the, all the way to the bottom, and whatever happened, happened. The thought that something could occur never crossed my mind. Needless to say, if I found any of my kids driving half of that speed today, I'd take away the license for a year. Why is that? Because one of the signs of the immature mind is not being able to see consequences, not being able to see results. But as you get a little older, a little bit hopefully wiser, certainly more mature, you begin to realize that things happen, and no longer do I drive that way. One of the signs of the mature person is the ability to see reality, see consequences in a very real way. But it's very strange that there are many things that we don't see. And I'll share with you one good example. Let me ask you a question. How did you sleep last night? How did you sleep last night? Slept good? Hope so. Right? How are you going to sleep tomorrow night? Also up good? 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 Very good. Um, have you ever spoken to a litigator, to a lawyer, the day before a big trial? Have you ever spoken to a person who's on trial the day before the trial? Ask him how he slept. You're not going to hear that he had a, oh, a restful, wonderful night's sleep. Quite the opposite. Very, very tense. Very, very nervous. Okay, here's a simple observation. Hashem sits in judgment on Rosh Hashanah. My fate. Whether I exist or not, is weighed, measured, and decided. Written on Rosh Hashanah, signed on Yom Kippur, whether I exist or not, is an open book question. How do I sleep at night comfortably? Do you understand that every year on the U.S. highway system, 40,000 people die? Do you know that every year in the United States of America... 600,000 people die of heart disease, 500,000 of cancer. In an average year, 2.5 million people die. And that question, myself, my spouse, my children, my family, is being decided on Rosh Hashanah, signed on Yom Kippur. How do you sleep at night? tight. How is it possible that we sleep that we don't feel trepidation, we don't feel awe and fear. And that's not just the only question. I'd like to ask you another question. In the past 10 years, think about this honestly. In the past 10 years, have you ever done something that the Torah said was forbidden? Right? Have you ever sinned? Have you ever done something in the past 10 years that the Torah said is forbidden, and yet you did it? Huh? Now, if you're even remotely honest, you'll realize that the past 10 minutes might be a better question to ask, not the past 10 years. Well, here's a very simple observation. Sefer Chinuch explains, why do we say vidui? Why do we have to speak out the words? And he explains, because the rest of the year, we made a roe, ki'ilu eno roe. We made Hashem who sees, we pretended as if Hashem didn't see. You see, every sin that I ever transgressed is a denial of Hashem's presence. If I recognize that the creator of the heavens and the earth is present right here, would I dare violate his commandment right in front of him? If I ever realize that Hashem is present, would I speak Lashon Hara? Would I even violate the smallest nuance of anything? It would be impossible. Every Aver explains the Savior is a denial of Hashem's presence. 
all year round. We're training ourselves. We're acting in a way, Hashem isn't here, Hashem isn't here, Hashem isn't here. And once a year on Yom Kippur, we try to reverse that. We speak out the words, Hashem, I recognize that you saw, I recognize that you were there, what I've done, I've done wrong. And I say, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, because at that moment, I'm trying to reverse the lack of emuna, reverse the kfira, the denial of Hashem's presence that was involved in the whole year. But again, here's the question. How are we so thick? I'm a mamin. I believe, I understand. Hashem is present. So how do I so quickly forget it? How does it disappear? And if you'd like to understand the answer to this, I believe it's really quite simple. Look at your hand. Not only is it the most dexterous, most controlled object you could imagine, 48 muscles in the forearm controlling the most fine muscles, there's a sense of feeling. I can touch and I can tell rough or smooth, hot or cold, hard or soft, even wet and dry, tremendously sensitive sense of touch that I have. It's astonishing. However, if you take your sensitive hand and put it into a thick ski glove, reach into your pocket and try to feel whether it's a dime or a quarter in there, you're not going to be able to tell. It's not that your fingers aren't sensitive. It's that they're covered with layers and layers of this thick glove. That is us. I am an Ashama, taken from under Hashem's kiseh covered the throne of glory, with a tremendous amount of understanding. I understand the consequences. I understand the value of one mitzvah. I understand the damage of one sin. I recognize I was put in this world to grow and accomplish, and I understand the tremendous change I wrought in myself and the world at large when I do what's right. The problem is that I was put inside this body, and much like a very sensitive finger that's put into a thick ski glove, and I was put into this body, and everything now is deadened. Everything now is covered with layers and layers of physicality, and I don't feel it. I can't feel Hashem's presence. I don't recognize the effects of my actions. I certainly don't think I'll ever die. I'll live forever because I'm covered with layers and layers. At most, what I'll feel sometimes is like a pinch on the outside. When Hashem clearly intervenes in my life, when Hashem clearly gets involved in a very clear way, I'll feel it as if maybe a pinch, sometimes maybe even the whole glove being lifted. But I can't feel because I'm covered with layers and layers. Except between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You know why we say HaMelech HaKadosh? The Mishabur explains because during these days Hashem manifests Himself in a totally different way. During the year Hashem is HaKel HaKadosh, the God behind the scenes hidden behind the scenes, behind nature, behind market economies, collapse or expanse, but always hidden. But during these 10 days, Hashem is Mara Malchuso. Hashem shows His sovereignty, Umem Shalto, and His rulership, Shehu Bakol Mashallah, that He rules over everything. If you say HaKel HaKadosh during these days, you miss the mark. We refer to Hashem as Hashem manifests, as Hashem shows Himself. During these days, Hashem no longer shows Himself behind the scenes, hidden right there, showing Himself as the King. And the Peleyoids gives a mushal. If you'd like to understand Hashem's presence from Rosh Hashanah, Sashem Yom Kippur, imagine my eyes are closed and a man brings a candle. 
Now, obviously, because my eyelids are closed, I can't see the flame, but I'm fully aware of the light. That's Hashem's presence during these days. Right here, much more accessible, much more available. I could speak to Hashem. I could feel Hashem's presence. And suddenly that thick, thick ski glove is peeled off layer after layer after layer. What I can feel, what I can experience is vastly different than what I could feel and what I could experience during the rest of the year. And now I'd like to share with you a major, major chiddush. The avoda on Rosh Hashanah, the main job of a Jew on Rosh Hashanah is to be mam Hashem, to make Hashem the king. What in the world does that mean? We have like elections? Oh, I vote for God. You vote? Yeah, okay, we all vote. Yes, this entire shul votes for God. Yes, God is in. God is the king. Okay, good. We, we, were, we just made God the king. Very nice, yeah. What does it mean with mam Hashem? Hashem doesn't need us to appoint him the king. Hashem isn't like sort of like betwixt and between. The concept of being mam Hashem is that I recognize that God is the king. Not that God becomes the king through me, but I finally wake up. I finally get it. I finally wake up from my slumber, wake up from my sleep, and realize that Hashem is present. Hashem runs the world. I look back on my past year and I say, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? Didn't I realize Hashem was there and Hashem was here, Hashem was involved in everything? Didn't I realize why those events happened? That person I got so angry at, he did such an avla, such a bad thing. Don't I realize Hashem was orchestrating that event also? Being mam Hashem means waking up to recognize that God is the king running the world. And being mam Hashem has a number of aspects to it. The first and probably the easiest is to be mam Hashem over the physical world. To look out at the awesomeness of this physical world and say it's astonishing. And every day that I open my eyes, I see more wonders and more wonders and I'm blown away. God, your majesty is so manifest. And being mam Hashem over nature means studying, looking at a tree, a big wide tree, and asking, why isn't it blown over? It's a wind sail. It's catching so much. Why doesn't it blow it over? And realizing that the circumference of the tree branches are always matched by the root system. And if the tree's branches extend out to a 50 foot diameter so to go the root system and if it's a hundred feet in circumference don't worry about it it's going to be exactly matching it at the base because the roots somehow know to grow out just the right distance so that it doesn't topple in the wind who taught the roots of the tree to do that you know that there's a firefly you ever see a summer's night fireflies light up light up light up light up why did it do that They do that to attract. You see, the male firefly is trying to attract the female, so it lights on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. The female also lights, but very infrequently. And for decades, scientists could not understand the attraction because there are multitudes of different types of species. Yet each time, the two species are only the right ones that are attracted, and they only mate within species. But there can be hundreds of different firefly species, but they'll never crossbreed, always the right one. How do they know it? And finally, someone did the math. You see, when the male firefly is beating, there's a certain cadence, a certain beat. The female firefly sees the right beat, and it responds. 
So, okay, I got it. That's how the female recognizes the male, because the male is doing its beat, da, 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 as opposed to da, 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 da. So the female knows. But how does the male know that the female is the right one for its species? So they did very, very careful timing. And they found that the female also is directly in timing. The last beat of the male, the female is on the microsecond, boom. That tells the male that it's the right female. A split second later, it's the wrong one. The right timing, except for one firefly. There's a femme fatale firefly that attracts males of another species, eats those males, and then mates with its own male. What does it do? It reads the beat of the other male species, and then it fakes. It imitates its timing so that the male sees it as a female from its species. The male gladly comes to mate, and the female consumes the male. Then the female will go to its species, do the right timing. Who taught the firefly microsecond, hundreds, thousands of seconds? Who taught you this? And when you study this world and you see such wisdom, you see such astonishing wisdom, you You say, God, I get it. You are the creator. You are the master. You are the one who orchestrates and runs, maintains all of this. And that part's easy. The second part of being mam Hashem is recognizing that God is the king over the running of the world. And that means market economies, that means which companies will reach tremendous stellar success and which companies will go bankrupt, which nations somehow manage to advance and continue, and which nations somehow seem to become lackluster, lose their glory, whether because their leaders lose their sense, or the people elect leaders who lost their sense of patriotism and a sense of love of the land, and beginning to look behind the scenes And reading the New York Times as a Jew should read the Times by saying to himself, wow, I can't wait to see what Hashem has in mind with this one. I can't wait to see where Hashem is bringing us in through this. The second area of being Mamlech Hashem is recognizing that Hashem runs the big picture issues of the world, running all the events of mankind, and that's a big part of being Mamlech Hashem. The third part of being Mamlech Hashem is recognizing that Hashem is right here, involved in my life, involved in the intricacies of my life. When I walk up the stairs at night, when I walk back down them in the morning, that I don't trip, that when I put the electric cord into the toaster, it doesn't short and the house blows up in flames. The fact that I get behind the wheel of my car and safely arrive, recognizing Hashem is with me 24-7, 365 that's a third area of being Mam Hashem, recognizing that Hashem is the king over me, over my destiny, over my fate, over everything I do. But there's a fourth area that's even more difficult, recognizing that Hashem reads through me like a book, that Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them, that Hashem doesn't need me to speak out my words. Hashem peers into the essence of me is with me 24-7 and knows exactly what I'm thinking when I'm thinking it. The last pasuk we say in every Shemona Esrei, Hashem, let the words of my mouth find favor in your eyes, the hegyon libi and the thoughts of my heart. I don't need to speak out my words for Hashem to hear me. Hashem, can you hear me way, way up there? Uh Uh-uh. Hashem is right here. 
But more than Hashem being right here, Hashem isn't blocked by physicality. My neshama, which is I, thinks, and Hashem hears me as I think my thoughts. And being mamlech Hashem in the most difficult sense is for us to finally get it. To wake up from the slumber, to realize Hashem is present. Hashem knows exactly what I was involved in this past year. Hashem knows exactly where I'm at. And then to go through Rosh Hashanah, go through Yom Kippur, and to stand in front of my Creator and say, Hashem, what you're looking at now is not the final end goal. I'm not very happy with where I'm at now. I have grand plans of growing, of accomplishing, but know and understand where I'm at right now is not where I plan to be. I'm not pleased. I'm not happy. It sure ain't over yet. I have a lot more to go. And then being man enough to say, I have failed, I have flaws, and being able to recognize them and admit them to my Creator. It's not a chiddish to my Creator. It's not something novel, something new. But more than that, to say the words, Hashem, I almost feel foolish telling you because you were there. I almost feel foolish mentioning this because you were watching me. But I have to go through the process and going through the process and begging Hashem for mercy and begging for forgiveness. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur are the most beautiful days in a Jewish holiday. A person can sense things, can understand things. A person can gain a proximity, a closeness to Hashem that's physically impossible the rest of the year. Much like that ski glove that's so thick that covers us during the course of the year, we can barely see Hashem. From Rosh Hashanah till Yom Kippur, it's vastly different. And especially during the tinnitus, during a fast, when the physical body is weakened and my neshama is able to feel things to a greater extent. And wait, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 3 o'clock, when the body is really weakened and the fast takes over, suddenly you may feel weak, but there's a clarity of thinking. There's a clarity in your mind and you're able to look back at your past and say, what was I thinking? You're able to look at your future and say, let's go and create plans and create an entire goal system. I think there's a tremendous lesson for us to learn from this Chazal. What Moshe Benu was saying to the Kalei was, you're going to enter a land, a beautiful land, and you're going to have riches. Obviously, you're not going to be able to attribute the crops, the bucker, the cows, the sheep to yourself. You were born in the Midbar. You know clearly that these are miracles. But there's one area. You might think that it was your wisdom that made you decide to sell the sheep and invest in cotton. You might think it was your wisdom. No one understand that it's Hashem. Because it was the Dordea, because it was a generation born in the Midbar, that was their only area of mistake. And again, I think for us there's a lesson there to look back on our year and realize that that which other people said to us, that which we said to other people, was largely influenced by Hashem. It doesn't obviate my responsibility if I acted irresponsibly, certainly if I acted wrong. That's my problem. But assuming I acted prudently and well and proper, knowing that Hashem orchestrates the world by putting thoughts into people's minds. Hashem hides behind this veil of physicality. You could look at such a majestic, magical, physical world and not be wowed by it, as scientists aren't wowed by it, because Hashem is constant and consistent in the way that He hides behind nature. And for that reason, Hashem very rarely changes it. The vast majority of Ashkacha, the vast majority of Hashem's intervention is in people's thoughts, having the right guy appear at the scene at the right time, having me decide to say this line and not that line. 
putting thoughts into people's minds. Nevertheless, Mam Hashem means recognizing Hashem is the master of everything, recognizing Hashem runs economies in the world, recognizing Hashem runs my life, and more than anything, recognizing Hashem is right here, knowing my thoughts, guarding me, protecting me, wishing for my best. And I'd like to close with one last thought. When I was a boy, I was in camp, and I clearly remember Benny the baker. Benny the baker was a very friendly fellow. He baked great strudloff. He spoke with a thick uh, accent. None of us fellows really realized much back then, and we certainly didn't know his story. He was a nice baker, a nice man, and that's all we knew about him. Years later, I found out the story. You see, Benny explains that he was in his town. He was already a young man working when the Nazis entered his town, and they took over. He would still go to work every day, but he had a dread and a fear. His greatest fear was he had a young sister who he loved like anything precious in the world. And every day when he would leave for work, he'd beg her, please hide in the closet. Please don't make a peep. He explained that every day when he came back, it was the joy of his life to see his young sister again. He lived for her. He loved her with an incredible passion. And every day he would leave with great dread. He explained that one day he came back to the apartment and there was something wrong. The door was broken into. Everything was cluttered. He ran to the closet and she was gone. Without thinking, he rushed out the door and ran directly to the Gestapo headquarters. He bursts in. He points to the Nazi officer behind him and says, Give me my sister. Where is she? And the Nazi looks up. <laughs> Ooh, we Jews have some interesting manners these days, don't we? Tell me, who is this sister? Six-year-old girl, blonde hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me, do all uh, beautiful little girls have ugly uh, Jewish brothers? Uh, give me my sister now. Mm, says the Nazi. You want her? You want her? You can have her. All you have to do is grow hair on the palm of your hand. <laughs> At which point, Benny says he picked up his hand opened it up, and on the palm of his hand was a tuft of black hair. The Nazi's face turned. He began screaming, Get out of here, you devil! Get out of here! He grabbed his sister and threw them both out. Benny grabbed his sister's hand. They began running and running. They ran to the woods. They survived. They escaped. And later, Benny explained how it is that there was a tuft of hair on the palm of his hand. When he was a young boy at work, his hand got caught in the machine and it was destroyed. The doctors did the best they could. They began grafting skin from another part of his body that might later, when he reached maturity, might later grow hair. They put together his mangled hand and they grafted new skin on it. They told him it was very unlikely that it would ever grow hair. But then he explains his, apparently that his hand didn't go to medical school. When he turned an adolescent, he suddenly began growing hair on the palm of his hand. But I'd like to share with you something that I find profound about that story. You see, when he was a little boy and his hand got caught, I have to imagine that he had tremendous consciousness. Hashem, why me? Why me, Hashem? Where are you? Why aren't you protecting me? And later on, when his dear precious sister is taken from him, Hashem, why? That's the one thing I asked you. Hashem, where are you? And little does he know that both of those were the greatest gifts that Hashem gave him. Because only because his hand was mangled did he happen to have that tuft of hair on his hand. And only because his sister was taken, it happened to be that he and his sister ran to the woods and escaped. 
the rest of the town didn't fare so well. And he owes his life, his existence, to Hashem's careful orchestration of his life. But that's not the strangest part. Why in the world would some maniac Nazi ask, I'll let your sister go if you grow hair on the palm of your hair? Why should he think such a thought? And why should that thought come into his brain just to the man who happens to have a tuft of hair on the palm of his hand? And that's Hashem. And when you study this world and you see all of those strange coincidences and you see Hashem behind the scene, say to yourself, I get it. That's God orchestrating the world, orchestrating the world in the global sense, orchestrating nature and orchestrating mankind's interactions by putting thoughts into people's heads. May Hashem grant us the wisdom, the understanding to use Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur properly. May Hashem allow us to understand His presence, understand life and become ever closer to Hashem. 